we want to um, always give honor to God for what he's doing. Thank you for the worship team for leading us into his presence this morning. Uh, we are going to look at the Gospel of Luke this morning and the ninth chapter and the 51st through 62nd verses. If you'd like to turn to that, Luke 9, chap, uh, chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. As you're turning to it, I'm going to begin to read. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. When the days drew near for him, this is speaking of Jesus, him being Jesus. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, once again, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your presence here. Holy Spirit, we ask you that you would give us ears to hear what you would say and hearts to uh, receive and obey it. Illuminate your word for us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Focus is a critical part of reaching almost any objective. Focus as in knowing what the objective is and the steps to take to reach it. Whether it's an athletic objective, an academic one, something that has to do with your career, you name it. Focus is critical. It's important. Whether it's a monumental task that you've never done before and few others have done, or whether it's something that you just need to accomplish before the end of the day at your job because it's an important thing, focus is critical. If you look at the lists of the habits of set successful people, and there are lots of them out there, the seven habits of successful people, the eight habits of successful people, whatever it is, you'll find focus on those lists. I think it could prob probably be said that when you're trying to reach an important ob objective, if you're lacking in focus, 
then it's very likely that you may fail. We have to focus in so many aspects of our lives, big things, small things. My friend and next-door neighbor, Mike Walsh, is back here, and I asked if I could call on him. Mike is one of the premier driver's education teachers in the state of Delaware. You know that? <laughs> Mike's gone now, I don't know. But just two questions. I said, Mike, I just want to ask you two questions, because not only is, a great driver, is he a great driver's ed education teacher, he's also a coach who's coached in many sports. So two questions relating to those two things that have to do with focus is just, Mike, is it, not, is it true or false that lack of focus contributes to many automobile accidents? It's true. When we get behind the wheel, we're supposed to focus. And we don't even need to hear that from Mike, do we? Because we hear it so often on billboards, don't text and drive, distracted driving. Focus is important. As a coach in any uh, sport, whether it's individual or team sport, is focus, true or false, focus is critical to the success of any team or individual. It's true. Thank you, Mike. Focus is critical in reaching our objectives. You have to know what it is. You now have to know how to get there. There's another aspect of focus, and that's seeing things clearly. I've been wearing glasses now for 20-some-odd years since I was 20 years old. I can see pretty well with these glasses, but if I take them off, you're all out of focus. I could probably tell who you are unless there are two of you that look very similar and if you walk up to me with my glasses off I may call you by the wrong name. I can't see clearly. There are some people probably who are unable to see clearly without their glasses or contacts so much so that they can't even see where they're going and they could bump into things. We need to have focus to know where we're going. If we take a picture with a camera and it's out of focus, that image is blurred. Our text today has to do with focus, both as in reaching an objective and insofar as being out of focus, it has to do with picturing clearly where we need to be or where we're going. Looking at Luke. 951 through 62. And this portion of scripture represents a pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus. We're only nine chapters into Luke, and there are 24 chapters in the book. But in this ninth chapter, it's a pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus. Something's about to shift. And we see it in the 51st verse. This as far as a timeline, is probably several months before the Passion Week, which we're going to be observing next week. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. We'll be observing that here the following, in the, in the week following Via Dolorosa. We'll observe the final days, the final hours, and the crucifixion of Jesus, and then, of course, Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. Observe his resurrection. The, this event, 
these uh, verses represent a timeline where just a few months before Jesus went to the cross. There's still some teaching and preaching and ministering and healing and miracles that are going to take place. But there's something of a shift in focus. And we see it in the 51st verse. It says, when the time drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, when Luke speaks about taken up, he's referring most likely to the ascension, which happened after Jesus rose from the dead and walked the earth and then ascended back to the Father and the Holy Spirit was poured out. But the whole picture is in view here. None of that would take place until he went to Jerusalem. When the time came for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's facing his destiny. He's facing the plan of the Father from all eternity. And when Luke uses these words, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, it's most likely that he's looking back at the, God, at the book of Isaiah. Because there's a very similar verse in Isaiah chapter 50. Now Isaiah can almost be referred to as a gospel of the Old Testament because there are so many messianic prophecies in Isaiah. Isaiah speaks of the conception of Jesus, for unto us or, or a, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a, a child speaks of the birth of Jesus, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Speaks of various times in the ministry of Jesus, and in the powerful end of chapter 52 and the verses in 53, it speaks of his crucifixion, for he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquity. Powerful passage of scripture. And just before that, in chapter 50, there is yet another messianic prophecy. We're going to read verses 5 through 7 of Isaiah 50. And this is as if the Messiah himself is speaking. Though it was written by Isaiah, the prophet, 700 years before the birth of Christ. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. We'll talk about that at the very end of the message, that particular part of verse 5. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. A reference to the torture that Jesus suffered at the hands of the Roman soldiers. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting the same. And then verse 7, but the, God, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. In the very beginning of verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. I have set my face like a flint. The Old Testament passage that Luke most likely had in mind when he wrote these words in uh, his gospel in chapter 9. Flint is a hard rock. It is an indication of how Jesus was resolute to do the Father's will, to face the destiny that awaited him in Jerusalem and ultimately 
pay the penalty for the sins of every man, woman, and child that ever lived. He was resolute. He was unwavering. He was totally committed to what he knew he had to do. He was focused. He was focused. He knew the plan. He knew the purpose. He was carrying the awesome weight of responsibility for what he was about to do. He was focused. Remember, this is still months away, probably, from all of those things taking place, but the magnitude of what lay ahead compelled him to now always keep this before him in in perhaps a way that he even had not up to now. Always keep that ultimate plan before him because as the time drew near, as those weeks passed, as he went into Jerusalem, the opposition was going to grow and the battle was going to rage and the demons of darkness were going to be at their, at their worst. And so he had to intensify his commitment and his focus. Nothing could stand in the way of what God had planned. So we have to ask ourselves, how resolute are we? When God gives us a ministry to do, when he gives us an objective, when he gives us a responsibility or a task, and we know what he wants us to do, how resolute are we? We need to take our cues from Jesus. Do you set your face to accomplish by the grace of God and by the power of God, not in your own strength because you can't do it, but do you rely on him? Do we set our faces to do his will the way Jesus did as he prepared to go to Jerusalem? If we, if we don't do that, if you're, le- if you're lacking in focus, then it's likely that you may fail. We have to set up our faces to do his will. Because just like Jesus, when God calls us to do something, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be opposition. We're going to face opposition, maybe from our own doubt and fear, anxiety, or worry. We're going to face opposition from the enemy of our souls who's going to want to keep us from doing God's will. We're going to face opposition from physical enemies, perhaps, and sometimes members of our own family or friends who say, what, are you crazy? Well, go to Bible college when you're 32 years old and you're married and you have three children? We're going to face opposition. But... We need to take our cues from Jesus. We have to press on. We have to focus. We have to be resolute in what he's called us to do. That's just verse 51. I guess we better move on here. (laughs) And he sent messengers ahead of him on the way to Jerusalem. He sent messengers... Some speculation is that this was probably the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, one of the feasts of Israel, and that people were preparing to go to Jerusalem, 
There are lots of travelers, lodging necessary. Jesus sends messengers ahead to prepare the way. And the way that he's taken is through the village of the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans reject him. Opposition, there it is. For those of you who may not know, there was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. No love lost between them. The Samaritans were descendants of the Jewish-Gentile relationships and intermarrying that took place as the Jews went into captivity 600, 500 years before the birth of Christ. And so they were looked down upon. We see evidence of that when Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. We won't go into a lot of that powerful passage of scripture, but he encounters the woman at the well, and she says, he asks for a drink of water, and she says, why would you want to take a drink of water from me? I'm a Samaritan. They worshipped on Mount Gerizim instead of in Jerusalem. They set up a temple there instead of the temple in Jerusalem, which God had ordained. So there was bad blood between them. And because there was bad blood between them, Jesus, as he made his way, makes his way to Jerusalem and sends the messengers ahead, the Samaritan says, no, no thanks. We don't want him here. He's not coming this way. No lodging, no room, no room in the inn once again for Jesus. We don't want him here. Samaritans couldn't see. It's out of focus. They didn't know that this is the man, the God-man, whom God had sent to save them from their sins. They were out of focus. They didn't see who he really was. They couldn't see the plan. And so they dishonored him by rejecting him. The world today is filled with people whose view of Jesus is out of focus. You've probably experienced it as a believer. You've been rejected. You've had people think you're crazy. Not like the Jesus that you worship. You see the persecution of believers in, in so many nations of the earth. Last November, we observed the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and I was privileged to pray for them. If you don't read the accounts from Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors Ministry, you should. Most of this never makes it to the media. Hundreds of hundreds of people dying, losing everything they have because of their testimony of faith in Jesus. They're rejected. They're rejected by people of other religions who are hostile, like the Samaritans, whether it's Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, whoever it is, there's rejection. They're out of focus. They don't understand his word. They don't understand his truth. But the response of the disciples in this situation is not much better. 
because they say to Jesus, these people don't want you here. Let's just, let, Lord, let us call down fire upon them. We'll just burn them up. Burn them to a crisp. That'll teach them. Right? Just like Elijah did. He called the prophets of Baal together, and he said, you know, who are you going to serve? All the people were, had, of Israel had wandered from the Lord. They were serving the Baals. There was this syncretic worship of Baal and God together that they thought, and they were rejecting. And Elijah called the prophets of Baal together and challenged them, and we see the fire from heaven come down and consume his sacrifice while Baals, the priests of Baal are dancing around the altar and nothing's happening. That's probably what they had in mind. Let us call down the fire from heaven, Lord. We'll just burn them up. Now, my Bible has a footnote. Maybe yours does too. There are passages, there are verses of Scripture which the scholars, many of them believe, were not part of the original manuscript and a lot of translations like the ESV, probably the NIV, will have as a footnote. Some manuscripts say this. So I'm going to read what that says pertaining to these verses. Lord, do you want us to tell, uh, want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? As Elijah did, says in the footnote, but he turned and rebuked them. And some manuscripts add, and he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. The perspective of the disciples was out of focus. There's a day of judgment coming. There's a day of judgment coming from this day that we're in today. There is a day of judgment coming. And there was a day of judgment coming even in this time. But you know where the judgment took place? It took place several months later on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It says that it pleased God to crush him for our sins. That's where the judgment was coming. Jesus said, James and John, you guys, you'll get it someday. But right now, you got it all wrong. You don't understand. I didn't come to destroy the lives of these people. I came to save them. When I read Voice of the Martyrs magazine or the updates I get on my phone and I see that 50 believers have been killed in a church by radical Muslims, I got to be honest. Sometimes I've got the attitude of James and John. I'm like, Lord, Lord, why? These are your people. And when I get, when I have that in my heart, then this verse rebukes me, just like Jesus rebuked James and John. Every time you read one of those accounts, it says, 
Pray for this. Pray for the people who, who have been left behind. Pray for this church to be rebuilt. And pray for the perpetrators. And it's, it hasn't, I have to say, it hasn't always been easy. I'm getting more and I'm getting better at it. But that's what we need to do. They don't see. They're out of focus. They don't know the Jesus who came to save them. We have to pray that they do and thank God for those whose lives and hearts are being touched and coming to faith even after they have persecuted believers, just like the Apostle Paul. And so he rebukes the disciples. So let's move on to the last few verses, and we'll quickly get through this because we don't want to take too much time, but verses 57 through 62. These six verses follow the, the five verses, or six verses, I guess that's six verses as well, that we just looked at. Chronologically, they may or may not have. Some of the, what we see in Scripture in the Gospels doesn't follow perfect chronological order, but God ordained it to be as it was nonetheless. So even if this didn't chronologically happen, and it may have, after the first six verses we looked at, there is definitely a thematic connection here between the verses we looked at and these. So verse 57 through 62, Jesus encounters three men. The first of these men come to him and say, says, the first man says, I want to follow you. The next two men that he encounters, he calls to follow him. The first man comes and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. You think, well, okay, come on. No, that's not what happens. Jesus says, foxes have holes in this, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Like, why did he respond like that to this guy? This guy wants to follow him. Doesn't, isn't Jesus going to accept anybody to follow him who wants to come after him? No, he's not, because he can see into the heart of this man. He can read between the lines, and there's something that's not right here. The thoughts and intent of this man's heart wasn't right. There's something out of focus. Here's what I think, and specifics may not be correct, but I think, generally speaking, this is what was going on. This man looked at Jesus. He'd probably been exposed to what was happening in the ministry of Jesus, and he's like, wow, Jesus, I think you're pretty cool. You have quite a following. You know, um, I've heard you teach, and man, you teach like nobody else can teach. It's just like everybody's saying. You don't teach like the Pharisees and scribes. It's something totally different. It's out of this world. You have quite a following. Uh, you know, I've seen you do miracles and healing, and I'd like to get in on this. You know, it may even be good for my resume, and maybe, you know, I can have my own ministry sometime little speculation there, but I think that was going on. Jesus, you're a rock star, and I want to be part of the, I want to be a follower of you. Jesus said, 
you got this wrong. You're looking through rose-colored glasses. That's what he was looking through. He was seeing all the glamorous parts of following Jesus. And that's not what it's all about. It can't be said too much. Will said it in a sermon a couple of weeks ago. You mentioned, brother, the pastor that when you were first saved, who said to you, before things are going to get better, they're going to get worse. Is that what he said? Well, that's encouraging, right? That's, that's truth. That's truth. Jesus spoke to his disciples. You know, when the disciples said, or Peter, I guess it was, and it's recorded in several of the Gospels, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. We've put it all behind. And Jesus said, listen, I want to tell you, if you've left everything to follow me, I, I just want, to, want you to rest assured, whoever has left brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and property and, and everything they have left behind, they'll receive a hundred times more than that in this life and the life to come. But Mark's gospel adds a little something else. And maybe this is kind of what Jesus said to this guy. If you want to follow me, yeah, all these things will be added to you in this life and this life to come. And persecutions. Whoa, wait a minute. I don't know if I want to sign up for that. I like everything else I've seen, but I, I don't know about this persecution stuff. This man was looking at the glamorous part of ministry, and Jesus said, you think, yeah, I'm going to be victorious. In the end, I'm going to be victorious, but not before suffering. I may be popular now, but wait a few weeks. You might watch me ride into Jerusalem and see him waving the palms and everybody saying, blessed be he, he who comes in the name of the Lord. But five days later, totally different story. Jesus says, following me is not about the miracles and the healing and being a part of something that's trendy. What it is, is a walk of faith and a walk of obedience, no matter where it takes you. Amen? Amen. That's what he says to us, too. That's what he says to us, too. The second man that Jesus encounters, he says, come and follow me. And this man says, all right, I'll do it. But first, let me go and bury my father. And here's a man who's focused on the cares of this life. Jesus' response to him at, on the surface sounds pretty harsh. It says, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. Now, some speculation is that this man's father had died already. But from what I have read from most scholars and commentators, most likely, this man's father had not died, but what he was saying was, I, I want to go back home. Maybe he had an aged father. It might have been months. It might have been years before his father passed on. And he wanted to go back until then. Jesus says, you come and follow me now. Trying to convey the urgency of the calling. He says, let the spiritually dead, maybe he could see, maybe Jesus knew, he knew all things, that this man's family was not committed to God, 
So he may have referred to them when he said, let the spiritually dead, that's what he meant, bury the dead. You come and follow me. There was an urgency to the calling. Sometimes there is. Sometimes the urgency for some of us and what God calls us to do is more intense than for others. That was the case with this man. No delay now. Interestingly, we don't see what happens with any of these guys. We don't know. Third, quickly, the man, third man Jesus calls to follow him says, I'll follow you, Lord, but first I want to go back and say goodbye to my family and to my friends. It's sort of the same thing here. While the other man was probably more concerned with the cares of this life, and we know what the cares of this life can do. Jesus talked, talked about it in the parable of the sower, which Will preached a couple of weeks ago. They could choke out the seed. This man seems to be more focused on what was back home, the affections. He's focused on the affections. I want to go back and say goodbye to my mom and dad, my friends, and, you know, and, and Jesus, knowing all things, just like he could read between the lines with this first man, very likely he may have seen that if you go back, you're not coming back to follow me because something's going to happen. They're going to say, no, don't go. You know, stay. You know, you, you have to settle the estate when we die. Or, you know, your friends, you're not going to ever see them again. And Jesus may have seen that. And he said, to this man, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service. You'll lose your focus. You'll lose your focus. You can't plow like this. It wasn't easy plowing in Jesus' time. To plow a straight furrow, you had to focus as to where you were going. You can't go back. If you do, you won't be back here. And I'm calling you now. I want to close with this story, which I heard in Elon Bible Institute in the chapels 30-odd years ago. It's about a missionary, Henry, known as H.B. Garlock, who along with his wife Ruth in the 1920s went to West Africa to serve there in what had been known as the white man's graveyard. There was intense hostility there. Their story is a story of faith and a story of calling in the face of malaria and witchcraft and cannibalism. The story that he began, the account of his life and his wife's ministry, he and his wife's life and ministry, which was finished by his daughter-in-law, was called, Before We Kill and Eat You. 
That's what they encountered in West Africa among these tribes. But God used them in a powerful way. There were signs and wonders and miracles and salvations and transformed lives among these hostile tribe members and people being raised from the dead. It was a powerful ministry. God had laid a calling on this man's heart, H.B. Garlock, when he was a young man. And when he became of age and finished school and went to Bible college, he was thrilled and excited to receive the training that he would need to go out and do the calling that God had called him to do. But early on in his time at Bible college, first semester or so, he got a letter from home. And the letter from home said something like this. Dear son, your father's taken ill. And it's difficult now for him to keep up with the farm. And your younger brother is not quite old enough to take on too much responsibility. Please come home. Well, he was devastated. He'd finally made it to Bible college, began the training that would carry him into the ministry that God called him to do, and he was struggling. He was distraught. What he faced was something like the second man faced. And there's a quote from a commentator who said this, which so accurately portrays what that second man was saying. He was not torn between the right and wrong. Taking care of his father was not wrong. He was not torn between the right and wrong. He was torn between the right and right. He hesitated between two rival claims, both of them stamped with the seal of the divine. That's what H.B. Garlock was facing. So distraught, he opens his devotional that night when he gets the letter, and it, devotional for that day is Luke 9:62. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The next day, he goes to class and goes to chapel, And there's a speaker in chapel who stands up and says, My text for today is Luke 9, 62. No man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And so he went back to his room, and he prayed, and he sought the Lord for hours, and took pen and paper and wrote the most difficult letter that he ever wrote. Dear Mom, I can't come home. I can't come home. The urgency of this call won't allow me to do it. I can't come home. Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke 9.62 No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. They're bookends, those two verses. And Isaiah chapter 50 and the fifth verse, I said we'd go back to that again. 
The Lord God has opened my ears, and I was not rebellious. I turn not backward. I turn not backward. May God give us ears to hear his voice, not be rebellious, and have a focus that does not turn back.